Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. We continue our series on Lord, Teach Us to Pray. Of course, that title is taken from uh, uh, the request that one of the disciples made to our Lord Jesus to uh, help the disciples to pray. And of course, our uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer is what resulted from that. This is the sixth in our series, and today we're looking at the prayer of Elijah, and I've entitled our session together, Reexamining Our Expectations in Prayer. What is it that we do expect whenever we pray? Do we expect God to act in a certain way, or do we just simply have an expectancy that because God has promised that He will provide for us, that He will act, but um, not necessarily in the way that we anticipate that he will. And that's one of the issues that we'll see in the life of Elijah. You'll notice in the introductory section of your notes that I've, uh, that I've put something that I've called our prayer problems, and the word problems is in quotes there. Uh, and I call this a, a problem sampler because sometimes when we seem like we're having problems getting an answer from the Lord, or when I say getting an answer, I don't mean getting an affirmative answer. Uh, the Lord always answers prayer. Sometimes He says yes, sometimes He says no, sometimes He says later. But uh, when He says no or when He says later, then I think that's where we start searching and saying, well, you know, maybe, maybe I'm doing something wrong. And so I've just put a, a list of uh, verses there that for us... Uh, they're the place where we tend to go and look and see if we're having some sort of problem. For example, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 22, uh, the Lord Jesus says, And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And so we are having problems and we're not getting an answer that we think probably that we had anticipated that we would get. And we start asking ourselves, well, now, do I really have faith? How much faith does it take? Do I have the right kind of faith? What, what, what did Jesus mean when He said faith? Same thing with the issue of the will of God from 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything in his, uh, according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. Well, is it the will of God? Am I struggling over that? How do I know? You know, there's, there's certain passages in the Bible that specifically spell out the will of God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You don't have to pray about whether or not you need to leave your mate and run off with somebody that's working in your office with you. The um, Bible says that we are to be faithful to our mate. But there's some things that we're just not sure about the will of God. Uh, you know, should I sell my house? Should I buy a new car? Should I buy a used car? Uh, should I go to this school? Should I encourage my oldest child to go to this university or that university? What is the will of God in all that? And we struggle with those things. 
Prayer and communion with Christ is one. From John 15:7, Jesus said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Well, if it's not being done for me right now, maybe I'm not abiding. What does it mean to abide? See, these are the, these are the things that we struggle with. Prayer in the name of Jesus. Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He will give it to you. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Well, I've been asking and I'm not receiving and my joy is not full. Uh, and I've been saying in the name of Jesus, is there, is there more to it than just tacking on those words at the end of the prayer? And as we'll see, that certainly is the case about prayer and persistent thanksgiving. Pray without ceasing, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Well, if you want to know what the will of God is, here's a, here's a good example. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's, that's kind of tough for most of us. Well, maybe I'm just not thanking God enough. You know, maybe I just need to, uh, need to praise the Lord more. See, again, we, we, we struggle with these things. Prayer and unconfessed sin. If uh, David writes in Psalm 66, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And again, this, uh, this goes back to the whole issue of the will of God. Well, it, it, certainly it is God's will for me to walk in holiness before Him. And if I've, uh, if I've done something, if I've sinned against God, then I need to confess that sin. Well, is there something that I fail to confess? And, and the Lord is just not showing me what it is. And that's the reason the Lord's holding out on me. We just, we struggle with these things. Prayer and personal righteousness, which ties in with this from James chapter 5, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And in fact, in, in that particular verse, James is using the illustration of Elijah. Well, maybe I'm not righteous enough. Well, the truth is is that when God saves us, He clothes us with the very righteousness of Christ. How do you get more righteous than that? Maybe it comes down to our perceptions in prayer. Perhaps, and I put this in your notes, our view of God and His Word. How do we view God? You know, if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Ask and you may receive that your joy may be full. When we read that, do we begin to think of God as some sort of divine bellhop? It's kind of like we're staying at a real luxury hotel and it's 11 o'clock at night and we realize, you know, I'm just a little bit hungry, so I think I'll call downstairs and, uh, and see if they'll make me a turkey sandwich and, uh, and fix me a cup of hot tea and send it up here to my room. Is, is that the sort of idea that we have of God? Is that He's just sort of standing by uh, like the cup bearer and, and it's, it's almost like we're on the throne and He's standing by as some sort of bellhop just waiting for us to ask? I, I think probably most of us don't think that way, but sometimes I wonder if uh, that kind of thinking crosses our mind. What, what is our own view of our own role in prayer? Uh, are are we doing what what we think he would want us to do just so that we can get what we want from him? In other words, the Bible says we need to praise him. Well, I'm I'm gonna give him lots of praises because if it's it's kind of like playing a slot machine, if I keep dropping in the quarters, eventually I'm gonna hit the jackpot. Well, maybe maybe God needs to be pumped up. Well, of course God does not need to be pumped up. He he loves his children. 
And God has His reasons for the things that He does. But the perceptions that we have have such an impact on our expectations and it very often will set us up for for disappointment. You know, the Bible goes on to say, and I, I put this in your notes as well, that God has made provision for us in, in terms of our prayer. Notice the passage from Second Peter chapter 1. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who's called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us. Here it is. He's granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. God's given us His Word. And His Word certainly reveals His will in, uh, in many instances. But He's also given us His indwelling Holy Spirit. Everybody who's a believer has the Holy Spirit living inside of Him. Notice what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now, look, Paul's even including himself in that. And we don't know what we ought to be praying for. Well, that's exactly what we've been talking about. That's why we struggle so much in prayer. But look what God does. But He says, but the Spirit Himself. Now, where is He? Yeah, that's right. He's inside of us. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, some people say this is the... This, this is talking about uh, glossolalia or the speaking in tongues. Uh, it's not because it says that the groanings here of the Spirit are too deep for words. They're, uh, they're, it's not articulated. It's something that's going on deep down inside of us. And that's, and that's borne out by the next statement. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, I'm not sure sometimes about the will of God. You're not sure about the will of God. But the Spirit of God is all, always knows what the will of God is. And when we're struggling with it, the Spirit of God inside us never is struggling with it. Isn't it great to know that we've got the third person of the Godhead living inside of us who's always, who is interceding for us and it's always according to the will of God. And we've got the second person of the Godhead seated at the right hand of the Father where He ever lives also to make intercession for us. We've got two persons of the Godhead who are constantly interceding on our behalf. And most of the time, because we're not real sure what we need to be praying about, or if we're praying, are we even praying about the right thing? Now, let's look at our illustration of Elijah. Some of you thought we'd never get there. Now, in terms of historical background, note the passage from 1 Kings chapter 16. These are the days of Ahab and Jezebel. This is not Ahab the Arab. This is Ahab the, uh, the king of Israel who was a vile, vile, wicked, wicked man. It says, Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and, notice, he, he married outside of the faith. Although, clearly, Ahab was not a believer from the things that we read about him and the things that God says about him. He was not a believer. He was a Jew, but he wasn't a believer. But he didn't marry inside the Jewish faith. He married a Sidonian woman uh, who was an obvious pagan uh, and also uh, 
her father, the king, and I'm sure he married her for political reasons, uh, to make a, a liaison there in some way. But it says, uh, took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him, and Ahab made an Asherah. Uh, that's the consort of Baal. It's a, a just a, a, an idol. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now that is quite a legacy to have. The time is the middle, the, about the mid uh, part of the ninth century B.C. It's a real time of uh, national prosperity, in spite of the fact that uh, of the sinfulness of Ahab. There's, there's been a lot of prosperity in the land going on it. At the same time, a lot of degeneracy as well. Ahab was the seventh king of the northern kingdom. And remember, every king in that northern kingdom, which had the name Israel, sometimes it was referred to as Samaria, which actually was the capital of the northern kingdom, Israel. Every one of those monarchs, every single one of them without exception, were said to be evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, that's one of the reasons that the northern uh, uh, nation went into uh, captivity before the southern nation did. While there were a lot of people, uh, a lot of kings in the southern kingdom of Judah who also were evil, uh, one of the things about the southern kingdom is that they did have from time to time some very godly kings, men like uh, Uzziah and uh, Hezekiah, uh, Josiah, uh, Jehoshaphat. Uh, people, uh, people like that who 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 reformed things and sought to bring the people back, and uh, they managed to exist for a while longer. But anyway, the the chastening hand of God when, in in our story here with Elijah, which leads to his prayer, the chastening hand of God is on the uh, nation of Israel, this this northern kingdom. And uh, notice uh, from 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, Gilead, remember, is just on the, uh, on the other side of the Jordan River, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So here's the announcement. There is going to be a drought until God says otherwise. And of course what happens when you have an extended drought is then you start to have a famine on top of that because uh, a drought means the crops can't grow. The crops can't grow. You don't have grain to eat. You don't have grain to feed your, uh, your livestock and your livestock uh, start to die. There's no pasture because of the drought. So it leads eventually to a famine and that's kind of what's been going on. One interesting thing, and this was, uh, this was not a part of your uh, reading assignment uh, before our study, and that is that, uh, and it has to do with Elijah's expectations, again, just by way of background information. When God announced through Elijah that there was not going to be any more rain until God said it was going to rain, uh, one of the things that God told Elijah to do, and obviously, see, this is going to affect the prophet. He's, that's going to affect Elijah. Not only is it is there going to be a drought uh, at everybody else's house, there's going to be one at Elijah's house too. It's not, it's, you know, there's not going to be a rain cloud that just comes and rains over Elijah's house and everybody else stays real dry. 
And one of the things that uh, God did was He told Elijah, He said, look, go down to the brook Kirith and uh, I'll dispatch the ravens and the ravens will bring you some, some food to eat and you'll have water there at the, uh, at the, the brook Kirith. Well, remember what happens in a drought is rivers turn into streams and streams begin to dry up and before you know it, uh, all stream beds are just cracked and parched. And of course, that's exactly what happened to the brook uh, Kirith, which brings us to the, to the, to the point that when, uh, when the brook dries up around us, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is displeased with us. It may be that God is displeased with someone else and we're receiving part of the backwash of God's chastisement or judgment on that person. Now, it is a good time for self-examination. We need to ask ourselves, is this, you know, is there some sort of sin in my life? Is there something that I've, that I've done? Um, but it may be, and it was in the case of Elijah, that he was experiencing the backwash of God's judgment on other people. And certainly, it's a great time, it's an opportunity to trust God for him to provide. Now, once the brook dried up, God told Elijah, said, look, you need to, you need to get out of Israel and go over to Zarephath. And uh, there's, a, there's a widow over there with a son, and uh, you, just, you just go to her, and I'm going to take care of all three of you. So... Elijah finds this Gentile woman, and that's exactly what happens. Isn't it interesting that um, that God would send Elijah to a Gentile woman? And incidentally, when he found this woman, this woman was on her last leg. She had just a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil left, and her plan was to go home and make some little hoe cakes or whatever they were, pancakes or something, and she and her son would eat for the last time, and then they would both just await uh, dying by starvation. And of course, while Elijah was there with them, the oil never ran out and the uh, flour never ran out and God did provide for them. Um, and that's what happened at, uh, at Zarephath. Now, that brings us to our study today. Some of you thought we'd never get there. In 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, it says, After many days, and the many days is three and a half years. We know that from uh, James chapter 5 where it says after... Uh, three and a half years, it did rain when Elijah prayed. It says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. What's the promise? Yes, the promise is that God is going to send rain. Is, are there any other promises that God has made to Elijah at this point? And the answer is no. The promise is for rain. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. It says, now the famine was severe in Samaria. And they finally, uh, through an interesting chain of events, they, they uh, meet. Verse 17, it says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And at this, it's at this point that what Elijah tells Ahab to do, and I guess Ahab felt compelled to do it because he recognized, at least to some extent, that the reason for the drought and the famine was because God had stopped the rain and, uh, and he's going to have to be willing to do pretty much anything. 
So Elijah tells him, he said, look, here's what we're going to do. You, you just send for everybody to come up, uh, everybody you can think of, to come up to Mount Carmel. Now, Mount Carmel was a, a, a peak that uh, sort of overlooks, uh, and still does, obviously, overlooks the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And you're going to see that's important uh, a little bit later on. But uh, also not only invite the people there, also be sure that all of those uh, uh, prophets of Baal and prophets of uh, Jezebel all show up at the same time. And we're going to have a contest and we're going to find out who God really is. Is God Baal? Is the true God Baal? Or is the true God the Lord? That is uh, the Yahweh says in verse 20, So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people did not answer him a word. Notice what the people were doing. Well, they were giving lip service to the Lord, that is to Yahweh, the God of Israel. But they were also worshiping the Baals. In other words, they, they were sort of covered, in their own minds, they were sort of covering all their bases. Well, if this doesn't work out, maybe this God will come through on this. If this doesn't work out, maybe the, the other one will come through on here. And Elijah said, you can't have it that way. It's either one or the other. If, and if, and if the, the true God is the Lord, then you need to follow Him. But if the true God is Baal, then you need to follow Him. And of course, the people had no response to that whatsoever. Uh, and it says, Then Elijah said to the people, and, and notice this, he says, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So you've got these, this audience of uh, citizens up there, plus 450 of, uh, of Baal's prophets, plus another 400 prophets of the Asherah, and, uh, and Elijah saying, I'm the only one that's left. The, that, that, that belongs to the true true God. I'm, I'm the only one. Now, what Elijah does at this point, he says, okay, now here's what we're going to do. He said, we're going to each choose an animal to offer to our, to our God. Uh, you, you prophets, uh, you 850, you're going to choose one. I'm going to choose another one. And uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to let you guys go first. And you're going to lay your wood down. You're going to sacrifice your animal. You're going to put the animal on the wood. And then you call on your God. And if, and if fire comes out of heaven and consumes that sacrifice, then, then Baal indeed is, is the true God. But on the other hand, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to sacrifice my animal. I'm going to put him on the wood. And I'm going to call on, my, on Yahweh, the true God. And the God who answers by fire, let him be God. Now, you would have thought that, and you understand why, why so many people were excited about this, because they really thought Baal probably had a little bit of an edge in this contest, because some people considered uh, the worship of fire as something that, that sort of went along in some regions with, uh, with Baal worship, apparently. So they had the contest. And they begin early in the morning, that is the prophets of Baal begin early in the morning, and, uh, and they go through the midday, and, and about midday, Elijah begins to heckle them. What's the matter? Your God isn't answering. And they begin to cut themselves, and blood starts going everywhere. But uh, by 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which is the time of the evening oblation, that's the time of the evening offering, uh, still 
Baal had not responded. So they cleared away that sacrifice. And Elijah set up 12 stones and, uh, and put the wood on it and put his sacrifice up there. And then he did something else. There was a, had a trench around the altar. And they started bringing up buckets of water. People say, ah, there, uh -huh. that, that's a problem. Now, they've had three and a half years of drought. Where did they get that water? Well, I tell you, they got it out of the Mediterranean because it was just right down there at the foot of the mountain. Nothing wrong with using seawater. But so they brought this water up and they dumped it all over the sacrifice. It just saturated the wood and went down in the trench, filled up the trench. And that's Elijah's turn. And notice what he says in verse 36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. See, now there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's the whole point. Lord, show yourself that you are the true God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord. Notice again, the word Lord, all caps, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, let's, let's, whoa, let's pause there for just a minute. Now, there's some things that Elijah has said here. Some sound real good, but some we have some questions about. So let's just pause and kind of think through it for just, uh, for just a minute. <clears throat> he says, Lord, he says, I want you to show that you are the true God. That, that's great. Reveal yourself as the only true God. That's great. He says, now reveal me as your servant and reveal that what I'm doing here is your idea. So he's saying, oh, by by sending down fire to consume this, you're proving that I'm the one that's right. Well, that's that's sort of marginal. Maybe maybe we'll give him a, a questionable one on that. But then he says in verse 37, he says, "Reveal to people that their hearts have been changed." He says, "Reveal that you have turned their hearts back." Now, when did God ever promise that He was going to change the hearts of these people? What has God promised? God's promised He's going to send rain. There haven't been any promises about some sort of nationwide repentance like you know happened with when Jonah went to Nineveh and they repented from the king on down. The, God has not made any promises regarding that. So it sounds as if Elijah has some sort of expectation that there is not only when the fire falls that there's just going to be sort of a revival that's just going to... Uh, revival's the wrong word. Revi uh, uh, there's just going to be some sort of national repentance that, uh, that, that takes place. Notice what happened, verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. What's the response? And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord... He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now, does that mean that all these people have repented? It doesn't say that. It just says, He won the contest. He's the one who answered by fire. So, He is the, he is the true God. But that doesn't mean their hearts have turned toward Him. They're just acknowledging the fact that He is the true God. And it is at this point that they seized Baal's prophets at Elijah's uh, behest, and they slaughtered them, all 850 of them. 
And then in verse 42, it says, And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. What had God promised? End of the drought. Rain was coming. And God fulfilled his promise in, uh, in doing so. Now, at this point, and this is not in your, uh, in your text, in your notes, at this point, uh, as, the, as the rain, was, as the clouds were building up, uh, Elijah told Ahab, said, you, you need to get back to the palace because it's, it's fixing to come up a frog strangler. I'm sure he didn't use that word. But uh, anyway, he said, you need to get on back. Well, now, Ahab and Jezebel were staying at Jezreel, so this was, uh, that's the, that was the summer palace. And so Ahab gets on his way, and uh, and uh, Elijah just uh, girds up his loins. That is, he pulls up the back of his uh, his toga and tucks it in his belt, and he runs right along with uh, with the chariot there. They have all the way back to Jezreel. It, it not quite a marathon, but it was uh, it was close to one. So in Elijah's mind, you know th- what a spectacular day. They get back to First King. Uh, they get back. They get to Jezreel, First Kings chapter nineteen, and it says Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Well, it wasn't so much what Elijah had done; it was what God had done. But see, Ahab's blind to all of that because he's lost. Can you imagine? Ahab drives up in his chariot because he's soaking wet, and he goes in. And uh, Jezebel says, "Well, what kind of day did you have, dear?" He said, "Let me tell you, you wouldn't believe the kind of day I had." And so he goes on to explain about running into Elijah and and all of the uh, the getting together with all of the prophets, and uh, and the execution of the prophets and the fire falling and but that thing about the execution of the prophets really galled Jezebel. And it says uh, he told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Now, is that what Elijah expected to happen? It doesn't sound like it. All of a sudden, there's a death threat on Elijah's life. And notice what he, notice, notice his immediate response. Because see, this is totally different from what he expected. It says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now this is why, when you read these kind of things, you need to get out your either your Bible map or your little atlas, or whatever it is. You need to read, you need to look and see where these places are. Because what Elijah did was he ran. When he ran, he ran 90 miles to the south. Now this brings us to another point that I might just make before we proceed any any farther, uh, further, and uh, and that is after the overwhelming victory that we see in chapter 18. How do you account for the fear and the flight reaction in chapter 19? There is never a time that we are more vulnerable to the onslaught of the enemy than after a uh, than after a real victory there's never a time that we're more vulnerable to defeat than at that moment of great victory remember what paul wrote in 1 corinthians 10:12 therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall how do we respond to life's surprises to god's providence as it works in our life 
Well, in the case of Elijah, he ran away. And he began by running away some 90 miles or so to the south. And then he left his servant, and he goes even farther into the, uh, to the desert region. Uh, and so now he is, uh, he is far away from Israel, and he is also alone. And we pick up the story. Verse 4, But he himself, that is Elijah himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Well, first of all, if he's interested in dying, he could have just stayed in Jezreel. But he says, I am no better than my father's. Well, the question is, who told him he had to be better than his father's? Some of the some of the other those who preceded him just didn't didn't really get the job done, and uh, he say, hey, you know, I really expected that I, that I would get the job done. Well, why did you think that? What has God promised? God promised it would rain. Did it rain? Yeah. Did God promise anything else? Did He promise that Ahab and Jezebel were going to repent and the whole nation was going to turn around? No, God didn't promise that. Now that would have been great if that happened. But God didn't promise that. He is filled with self-pity. Notice what's happened. He's, he's been on an emotional high. He's physically exhausted. He's developed unrealistic expectations. And they were blocked by Miss Jezebel in particular. And as a result of that came fear and flight and depression and a death wish. And it's all just sort of related to self-pity. And it says in verse 5, And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. Notice, notice God's grace here. God didn't give him a sermon. said, Well, now, you know... You shouldn't have done so-and-so. No, God, God just ministers to him right where he is. Because he's exhausted. And in fact, after he eats that meal, what happens? He, just, he lies down and he goes to sleep again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. Now that's an interesting statement. The journey is too great for you. Notice God didn't say, Well, you need to keep on going. And uh, this, this angel food cake is going to get you there. God didn't say that at all. What does he mean? The journey is too great. Was he even right in taking this journey? I think we'll see before we get through uh, with the study. Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. He has gone another 180 miles south to the Sinai Peninsula where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the pattern for the tabernacle. And he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Remember, Elijah is a prophet to what nation? He's a prophet to the nation of Israel. He is a long way from Israel right now. What are you doing here, Elijah? And notice, Elijah doesn't even respond to that question. And again, you see the self-pity. And Elijah said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. 
I don't feel very appreciated. That's what he's saying. And he, the referent there is God, and he, God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And Elijah doesn't do that. He said, well, how do you know? He said, well, all we got to do is keep reading. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. The great wind, the earthquake, and the fire were all phenomena that occurred there at Sinai at the time the law was given. So there's no question that this is God who is there to meet with Elijah. And then it says, And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, that is the low whisper, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went outside. Notice he didn't go outside when God first told him to go outside. Come out here. I won't talk to you. Let me tell you, probably a cave is not the best place to be during an earthquake either. But Elijah had sort of a a death wish at this point because he's so filled with self-pity. And he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Notice the question has not changed. Why are you here? And Elijah's response has not changed. He still doesn't answer the question. He just pours out his self-pity. He's a slow learner like the rest of us. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And notice the Lord does not even respond to that. Now the Lord's going to respond to that, but not yet. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Now again, this is why you ought to have your map out and you ought to be looking at these places because what God has just said is you have got a 375-mile trip to the north to make. What's the message? You know, if you'd stayed in Jezreel, you wouldn't have had nearly as far to go. You've got a long way to go. He says, And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. Notice, your ministry and your life is not over, Elijah. You still are going to do some things that have international implications. You're going to anoint the next king of Syria. And on on top of that, he says, uh, And Jehu, that is, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. So international as well as national implications in his ministry. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. Notice, that the work of God does not depend on any one person. That God's work is going to go on. God is going to accomplish His purposes, and no one is indispensable, and that includes Elijah. But God's not through with Elijah. God still has work for Elijah to do. But when it does come time for Elijah to go to be with the Lord, then there's going to be a person in place who will just be there to step in Uh, to, as it were, the sandals of Elijah and just carry on the ministry. God's plan, the only person who is indispensable in God's plan is the Lord Jesus Christ. It all centers around Him anyway. And you see that God is sovereign in making this threefold commission. 
Elijah, your ministry's not over. Your life's not over. I've got work for you to do. And by the way, you have got a long hike to get back to where you're supposed to be. And then God says in verse 18, he answers the self-pity part of uh, uh, Elijah's previous response. He says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What is God saying? He's saying, oh, and by the way, Elijah, uh, while you're thinking about, uh, this will give you something to think about on your, on your trip, back, on that 375-mile trip back. He said, oh, consider this. You, you are not alone. There's 7,000 other people who have remained faithful to me. So he, Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shaphat who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. This, he was apparently, his family was a wealthy family to have twelve yoke of oxen. And he was with the twelfth. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. Now that was his way, uh, sometimes, I think the old King James uses the term mantle and it's not talking about the one that's over your fireplace. The mantle is the, is the cloak. And the idea of casting the cloak on the shoulders of this person is, is the way of saying, look, God is calling you into the ministry, uh, the prophetic ministry that I've been, uh, that, in which I am involved, uh, Elijah would be saying. It says, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and mother and then I'll follow you. Now, that, that does not seem like an unreasonable uh, request to us. You say, I just want to say goodbye to mom and dad and then, you know, I'm, I'm coming along. That's not what it means. When he says, Let me kiss my father and mother, then I'll follow you. He's saying, when they die, and lay them in that coffin, and I give them the final kiss goodbye, then I'll come and follow you. And notice Elijah's response. And he, Elijah, said to him, Elisha, go back again, for what have I done to you? Now this is very important, because what Elijah has come to realize is he's saying, look, God told me to come and anoint you to to let you know that the the prophetic ministry is to is to be on your shoulders after me and I've done my part now what you do with that is between you and God wouldn't it be great if we could learn if we could learn to do that is to obey whatever it is that God is telling us to do and leave the results to God. I've done what God has told me to do. Now what you do is between you and God. That would revolutionize our lives. And he, that is Elisha, returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them. That's like burning your bridges right there. And gave it to the people, and they ate, and then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Now, what do we conclude from all of this? Well, first of all, and we've talked about some of this already. First of all, God's answer to our prayers can have an unexpected and very often an unwelcome effect upon our lives. It doesn't necessarily mean that we are in the wrong place or doing the wrong thing. Notice again the passage from James 5. Here, here it is in its context. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 
we need to remember that God Himself is our source and not other people or our sources and not look to other things as our source, but look to God. Because see, what we do is we develop expectations. Well, now, you know, that seems to me like God could, could solve this problem in one of three ways. He could do A, B, or C. Well, see, what we're, what we're saying is, well, yeah, I expect God to do something, but I expect Him to do it one of these three ways. Take your pick, Lord. And what God does is, He says, no, I'm your source, and I'll do it the way I please. And it, it may not be A, B, or C. It may be X, Y, or Z, things that we've never even considered. You know, dependence upon God enables us not to have to make demands on other people to meet our needs. We're to delight in the Lord, not make demands on the Lord. And we're to minister to people, not try to manipulate people so that they'll uh, see that they need to uh, get in touch with the Lord and meet our needs. And secondly, well, we've already talked about this. There's never a time that we're more vulnerable to defeat than at a moment of great victory. You know, things just almost never turn out exactly the way that we think they should. or And we just need to realize that our own sense of personal worth is not necessarily tied up with some sort of apparent success in doing what the Lord wants us to do. You know, Elijah, go pray and I'm going to send rain. And God sends rain, but Elijah begins to expect, well, you know, if he's going to do it, boy, God's just really going to turn things around. No. Now, God's going to do some other things, but they weren't included in God's plan at that point. We need to learn to be content with God, what God has actually promised, and with His timing. We're to wait upon the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We need to rest in the Lord. That doesn't mean we live passively. We're to actively trust in the Lord. We're to live expectantly. Now, if you look at a dictionary, it will say, and you look up the word expectation and work up, look up the word expectancy, you get essentially the same definition. I think there's a difference. Because I think sometimes with our expectations, we're saying, well, God's going to work and He's going to do, probably going to do so and so, or He might do so and so and so and so. But in, if we approach God in expectancy, yes, I'm convinced God will work. God God loves me. God has a plan for me. God has a purpose for my life. I know God is working right now. So I expect God to do something. But now what He's going to do, I really don't know. So expectancy, it, we, we are to live expectantly, expectantly. That is with a confidence that God is working and that He will continue to do work. If When we demand that things work out a certain way, it reveals our true motives, and our true motives at that point is, my will be done, not your will, Lord. And then finally, notice God is faithful in His encouragement to us as He shows us our sin, our demanding nature, and our unrealistic expectations. Now, that's not pleasant, but when God does that, He does that because that's a necessary thing for us to grow. But God encourages also when He cares for us in our wandering and, and brings us back to the right path. You know, Second Timothy chapter three, verses sixteen and seventeen talks about the, the the word of God and it's profitable for for teaching and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. Teaching, showing us the, the, the right way that, that we should live. Uh, reproof, that is where we got off the where we got off the road. 
for correction, how to get back on the road. That always involves confession of sin and then instruction in righteousness, how we ought to keep walking uh, with the Lord. So the, the Bible provides all of that. We need to be students of the Bible. And God also in His encourage, encourages us by reminding us that our worth is not based on what we do, but rather on what He already has done for His people in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, help us to learn that lesson right there. That our sense of worth is not wrapped up in the stuff that we do. We're not, we're not human doings. We're human beings. And the thing that ultimately gives us our value is the fact that we are made in the image of God, marred though that image is right now because of sin. And the other thing that gives us our worth is the fantastic price that was paid to redeem the likes of us. And that is the death of God's perfect Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When we come to God in faith, God clothes us with the very righteousness of His Son. All of our sin has been accounted to Christ and God has poured out His wrath on the Son, turned His back on the Son. My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? And why did God do that? so that He could take all of the perfection of Christ, all of, all of the righteousness of Christ, and put that to our account. Clothe us with the righteousness of Christ so that when He looks at us, He will never ever look away. Never. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Well, I think as we, as we think about Elijah, we all need to re-examine our expectations in prayer. We need to re-examine how we view our role in prayer. Is it to find the right formula so that we can get the stuff that we really want? Or is it to acknowledge that God is indeed the God of the universe and Creator and our loving Redeemer and He will always do what's best for us? And we can count on the fact that even when we're not sure what's best for us, we know how it hurts and we know what we'd sure like for God to do and we don't mind asking God to do that. But in the final analysis, our expectancy should be, yes, I know God's going to work and I know however it works out, it's going to be the will of God because my Savior is praying for me at the right hand of the Father and the Spirit of God is within me, making intercession for me according to the will of God. I can't count on my circumstances, but I can count on the God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Praise be to God for His great mercy. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax-deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.